Voice Nation. Greetings, my corundomized colleagues, and welcome to yet another installment of Device Nation, a veritable cornucopia of orthopedic treasures as we bring you KOLs, each and every installment, key orthopedic leaders to educate and inspire. Today's guest will certainly do just that. LinkedIn luminary, Dr. Celine Parekh, Director of Digital Strategy and Innovation and Coachy Foot and Ankle Division at Duke and adjunct faculty at Duke Fuqua School of Business and Galactic Viceroy of Research Excellence. Well, I made that last one up. A title actually held by James Mickens of Microsoft. A lot of ands on his CV, and you're going to want to hang around for it. Really exciting conversation. Well, my name is Kevin Brown, your device optimization liaison, and I hope you are having an awesome day. I know I am. I've had some wonderful listeners reach out recently asking how they could support Device Nation. Look, if you want to support the show, then support my sponsors, My Medical Images. Changing the way orthopedic surgeons view, share, and manage their medical images. If you have a patient showing up at clinic with a CD, then it might as well be an 8-track tape these days, right? It's 2021. Upload those images to the cloud. The patients have access to those images anytime anywhere, and there's no nasty surprises. Oh, it's a VA CD that doesn't communicate with our system, or it's corrupted, or the CD is damaged. Get all that off the table and check out mymedicalimages.com. Now, I know some of you may be thinking to yourself, what the heck is an eight-track tape? Well, it was just a really, really, really big cassette back in the early 60s through the early 80s. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, what the heck is a cassette? I got nothing for you at this point. It was just a really big tape, basically the first commercially successful foray into you being able to listen to what you wanted to listen to in your car, not just being hostage to what was on AM and FM radio at the time. Now, the downside was having to jump tracks on these things. Sometimes the track would put you right in the middle of a song. Some of the early 8-track players didn't even have a fast-forward button, so you were committed to basically listening to the entire album. As just trying to get to track two was excruciating. Now, here's the sunshine, though, sunshine. The sound quality on these tapes was amazing. 8-tracks, you could get quadraphonic sound out of it. So if you were an active listener of music, then that was your time to be alive. <laughs> and active listening takes us right to where we left off last time with our behavioral influence stairway. We've been talking about active listening and some of the challenges that can come our way as we process information being delivered to us by our surgeons, our customers, and colleagues on the other side of the table. We got to get this part right if we ever hope to see the next step, which is empathy. So let's jump into it. A veteran sales rep friend of mine found himself in an interview for a position he was considering. The area vice president called him up. My friend said within 15 seconds, he knew this was not an interview at all. This was just checking off a box. They had somebody else lined up 
for this position, but he humored him and listened to what he had to say. And for the next 30 minutes, the area vice president proceeded to lecture my friend on the new way of doing orthopedic medical device sales and that what he had been doing all along was pretty much wrong. Now, while this guy was talking to my friend, he said he got on LinkedIn and realized this particular individual had never sold anything, had held some management jobs here and there, but had never sold a lick of medical device. Forget see one, do one, teach one. This was more of a case of teach one and nothing else, right? So I asked my friend, well, was there anything at all in that conversation? It was good. And my friend said, yeah, there was a couple things that challenged me that I think I could do better. And I thought, that's good. And that's what we're going to land on right here. Packaging. Yes, we love those P words here at Device Nation. Our ability to listen to people is oftentimes dictated by the package that is presented to us, isn't it? It is so easy to listen to people that love us, that have our best interest at heart, and have the right pedigree, the right presentation, the right polish, the right politics, all those P words, right? We can listen to those people all day long, but I'm just going to tell you if somebody who's done this job for 30 years, the people that have written the bullet points on my life were not those people. Nay, it was not. They were not bringing me an electric blanket, a flat white with four stevias. No, it was usually a two-pound orthopedic mallet upside the head, sometimes behind my back, right? However, I needed to hear it, and it affected change for the good. Real life stuff here. This is not an academic discussion. I had to work with a nurse one time and this guy, his presentation skills were horrible to the reps. And what he said to your face was bad enough, but a lot of it would come at you from behind your back. And unfortunately, a lot of it was true. You know, the stuff that he would say about other reps, the stuff that he would say about me, uh, you couldn't avoid it. It was the ugly truth. So then you have a decision to make, right? You can shoot the message down because of the messenger, or you can humble yourself and say, yeah, I need to change. Let's tie this thing up. You don't get to pick the package. You do this job long enough, and you're going to be surrounded by people that will present themselves in such a way as to make them extremely difficult to listen to. Listen to them anyway. Even though their presentation skills may not be quite right, their pedigree, they're 20 years younger than you. They just got out of sales school. What do you have to listen to them for? They're polished, you know, they're loud, they're obnoxious. Maybe their politics doesn't line up with yours. Do not get in the habit of shutting people down just because they don't tick off the boxes because you're going to miss some stuff. You're going to miss some amazing stuff that's going to change your life. Empathy is not reserved for those that we love and that love us in return, right? I promise you, you do this stuff, it's going to make you a better device rep. It's going to make you a better surgeon. It's going to make you a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better father, a better friend, a better galactic viceroy, just all around better. And it's hard hearing these things sometimes, but we always have an ear out for nuggets of truth from the most unlikely of sources. Well, speaking of nuggets of truth, our next guest is chock full of them. Hailing from Durham, North Carolina, the foodie capital of the East Coast, Duke University Medical Center, orthopedic surgeon, Foot and ankle extraordinaire, Dr. Celine Parekh. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. Dr. Parekh, I am one of your biggest LinkedIn fans. I love your content and look forward to asking you about Lasso. 
the Jarvik Heart fantasy doctors but first let's go back to west orange high school the mountaineers what put you on the path to medicine i come from a family where medicine was really a strong anchor in in the family both on my mom's side and my dad's side my grandfather on my dad's side was a physician and back then you were just a general practitioner there weren't subspecializations And so my dad, even though he was not a physician, he was a chemical engineer, really helped his his father in clinics, bandaging wounds, doing sutures. And so he had a love for medicine. And so we were exposed to medicine from my dad's interest early on. In addition, my mom's aunts and uncles, many of which were physicians, had an influence on her life, which then influenced us as well. Uh, my mom was a, a chemist by training or by education, but again, medicine was had, had been in the family. So when I was growing up, you didn't call it STEM back then, but it was really about science. And so I grew up loving science. And early on, I fell in love with uh, the Jarvik 7 artificial heart. And I thought I was going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. And so that's kind of how it started. And then I, I just continued to love surgery specifically as time grew on. One thing I'd like to ask you right there, if medicine was not your final direction, if you would have done anything else other than medicine, what do you visualize yourself having done? (laughs) That is a great question. The problem with somebody like me is that I have so many interests. You kind of follow me on LinkedIn. So you see many of those interests working their way through on social media I think if I were not a surgeon, I probably would be in the business world trying to straddle business and medicine. It's kind of what I'm doing now, but being more, spending more of that time in the business world. Or I'd be in the, in the sports world doing something from a broadcast perspective. There was a great article in the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation that had your name in the byline, should an MD get an MBA. A great line from you, and I quote, I realized that if I wanted to be a quarterback in medicine, I needed to equip myself with the business knowledge I was so lacking. Well, you did the combined BA, MD on top of an MBA program. Two questions. Did you sleep from 1996 to 1999? And at the end of the day, do you think it was worth it? Back when I was looking into doing an MBA, it was fairly unheard of to do an MD and an MBA. And in fact, when I had approached the dean of the medical school at Boston University where I was, and then also the dean of the business school at Boston University with the idea of creating this kind of concept of an MD MBA, they were very surprised, they were supportive, and they thought, okay, let's see how this all works. And so the next three years, as you said, from 96 to 99, I really was, I was like a bouncing ball from the medical school to the business school, and, and they complemented each other really well. But yeah, I didn't sleep much. Luckily, I have genes where I don't need to sleep much. It became the foundation and a proof of concept for both schools at Boston University to create now an MD-MBA program that is, is popular at that university. Dean's list every semester. Any tips you'd like to share with the audience on how you study and prepare for tests? You know, I love sports. And so Derek Jeter has been quoted as saying that he will work harder than anyone on the field. And I think that's how I feel about my life and my career. I may not be the smartest guy in the room. 
and, and oftentimes I'm not. But I will outwork anybody for anything if I really set my mind to it. And for me, that's really what it was. doesn't matter what it takes in terms of hours and time and loss of sleep. And if my mind's to it and it's a goal of mine, I just put in the work and the time and just try to get to the, the result that I'm looking for. You would land on your surgical residency at UPenn and you held the position of fellow of entrepreneurship. What was that? The University of Pennsylvania had two tracks for orthopedic training. One was to a five-year track where you just go clinically throughout. And the other was a six-year track where you traditionally would spend the year in one of the research labs doing research. Throughout undergrad and medical school, I had spent seven years at uh, Mass General Hospital doing research. And benchtop research, I had already had the experience. And to be quite honest, you know, I knew it wasn't really what I wanted to do. For me, it was a, a little too slow-paced, and uh, and I was looking for something a little bit more applicable and applied. And so when I applied to the program at Penn, my intention was to spend that year at Wharton doing something in the in the Small Business Development Center uh, and the Entrepreneurial Center just to see if I could understand the translation of medical research being done at the medical school and how it could be launched into proof of concepts and into marketable products or ideas from a business perspective. And so that's what I spent the year doing, looking at translational research, looking at startups, and really spending time trying to understand the nuts and bolts of of being an entrepreneur and looking at, at problem solving. You went on to a fellowship in foot and ankle at UPenn. What attracted you to this part of the body? If you had ever told me I was going to be a foot and ankle surgeon growing up or even in medical school or even early part of my residency, I would have told you I hate feet. I can't stand them. I don't want to touch them. I don't want to look at them. Nothing, right? But I think there are pivotal moments in all of our lives when we reflect where individuals change your trajectory because of the impact they have. And I had that kind of experience. And and for me, there are a number of individuals along my life who did that, but one of them was back when I was in, in undergrad in medical school. So I, I knew I was interested in orthopedic surgery. I spent seven years doing research at Mass General Hospital, and I was working with the chief of orthopedic surgery at Mass General at that time by the name of Henry Mankin, who has now passed, but he was a giant in the field of orthopedics and a bigger giant in the field of orthopedic oncology. Being under him for those many years, I thought I'd when I finished my seven years there, I thought, hey, I'm going to be an orthopedic oncologist because I loved the anatomy. I love the fact that you could do some really creative things in the operating room. And so I spent all my years in residency thinking that that was what I was going to be. And during my fourth year of residency, when you have to make that decision of what fellowship you're applying for, I happened to be at the same time on the foot and ankle rotation at the University of Pennsylvania. And I was working with one of the faculty members by the name of Keith Wapner. And Keith was a private academic foot and ankle surgeon. So he had private practice that was affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania. And we spent a lot of time with him as fourth years. And on that rotation, I had an opportunity at the end of clinic one day to sit with Keith. And and Dr. Wapner is very, very efficient. And so when he's done with the clinic, you know, he'll see 100 patients in a day. He's done by 4, 4.30, and he's out the door. 
So he usually isn't lingering around in the afternoons. This afternoon, he happened to linger around, and I was talking to him. I had a chance to get to know him, and his life story was pretty compelling to me to start looking at foot and ankle. He was a uh, a resident who had had a wife who was diagnosed during their fellowship with breast cancer. Later on in life, had twins that had uh, cerebral palsy, and then he had had a recurrence in his wife's breast cancer. He told me his you know one of the things that he tries to do is when he's in the office he's focused like a laser, but as soon as he's done. He's basically back to spending time with his family because he felt like that was the most important thing to him and that he was on borrowed time. In addition, while he was doing all this stuff and you know, family was such the focus, he also was a world-renowned surgeon, having done research and, and creating new procedures. And so he was an academician but had his priorities right with family first and he gave me some advice that night, that day, that, you know, you know, family's always first. That's where your legacy is. When you're gone, nobody, you know, within 30, 40, 50 days, 60 days, a few months, people forget who you are. You, you really, you know, for your patients, you end up being forgotten. Nobody cares about how fast you became a professor. Nobody cares how many papers you've written. You know, once you're gone, you're gone. And the only people who remember you and the only people you really have impact on is your family. And I thought that was incredible insight. That started the ball rolling to consider, hey, you know, here I have a mentor who's got his priorities right, who's making an impact in, in, a, in the part of orthopedics. And I started looking at foot and ankle. And as I learned more and more about it, I loved the pace of the surgeries. I started loving the pathology. And I loved the fact that it was such a young specialty that if you were a a young surgeon who had ideas and had energy that you could make an impact on patients globally early in your career. And that's kind of how it all came about. So tell me about your practice these days. You've been at Duke since 2009, foot and ankle. What are you doing? Uh, What does an average week look like to you? So uh, I try to model my practice much after Dr. Wabner's so I'm in the office two to two and a half days a week seeing patients, and it's a high-volume, high-efficiency practice. And then I'm in the operating room twice a week, again, high-volume, high-efficiency. And so that's kind of the day-to-day boring schedule part. But throughout, I am involved with training and education, and we are evaluating new products and coming up with new ideas, and whether it's surgical procedures or implants. And then, you know, interspersed with that is when I have downtime, I'm doing some of my other passions, whether it's the fantasy doctors, which I think we'll talk about later, or doing stuff for our foundation. My schedule from a six to five perspective is jam-packed, come home, hang out with the family, and then once the kids are tucked in bed, I'm back doing my extracurricular work till about midnight. Dr. Preck, I remember when foot and ankle instrumentation basically consisted of what you could ferret out of a mini and small frag set. And now there's so many specialized implants, so many companies attempting to plant a flag in foot and ankle. Why is there this explosion of interest? Well, I think it's been a convergence of training. So there's been an interest from an orthopedic perspective in foot and ankle 
used to be known as kind of that forgotten part of the body. It, it really was left to, from an orthopedic perspective, it was left to the podiatrist to really own foot and ankle. And I think probably 20 to 30 years ago, there was an interest in foot and ankle as a specialty within orthopedics. Then, so as that started happening, you started getting people discussing not only the pathologies and the understanding of pathologies, but then the the ideas of procedures and uh, algorithms of care. And then in the last 15 years, I think you've gotten the convergence of those ideas with technologies that allow us to have a lower profile implant, stronger implants, the explosion of total ankle replacements, the interest of 3D printing. And I think all of these really cool technologies that are impacting foot and ankle has helped to increase the interest in foot and ankle with trainees and with medical students because it's it's been a specialty within orthopedics that has been an early adopter of lots of technology. And so it gets a lot of attention now, which it never used to do. You're walking into the OR these days with a veritable implant buffet at your disposal. How do you decide what ends up on the implant record? Uh, it ends up being, I think, a combination of surgeon preference. What the So that's one thing, uh, surgeons having an idea of products and solutions that they like. Secondly, I think it's uh, a product of the health systems allowing surgeons to have the flexibility to bring in the products that they want versus, you know, having one or two vendors that you must use. And thirdly, I think it's industry continuing to provide new solutions for old problems, whether it's now looking at the three-dimensional correction of bunions or, like I said, 3D printing. So I think it's all of these things that play a role. And and I think it really is the onus of the surgeon to try to keep up to speed with the developments that are happening, the solutions and products that are available on the market, and then lobby the hospitals to allow those products to be used in their health system settings. And so there are times where I may have two or three vendors for the same case in the operating room because I'm making an audible decision in the operating room to use product B versus product A uh, from a different vendor. But I think it's, it's kind of multifactorial how these products end up in the operating room. Being a part of implant design has to be super rewarding. I was just wondering, do you find yourself gravitating towards the engineering angle of it or more of the design aesthetic and feel? Uh, w- what's your strength in that? For me, I, I've really enjoyed being part of the design aspect, but I think that takes into consideration the engineering as well. And as time has gone on, my interest in the engineering part has increased as well. I think early on in my career, um, when I probably wasn't as well-versed in the engineering concepts or even the biomaterials, I really was just doing design work. And now it spans the design work and the, uh, and the engineering part of it. And I think that goes hand in hand. I think you can't have one without the other. What new implant solutions do you see coming that has uh, has you excited these days? In the last few years, I've been extremely excited about 3D printing, and I think that that's going to continue to be an area of excitement for foot and ankle. And, and it won't only just be the metal 3D printing, which we're seeing now, but I think in the next 10 years, you're going to see bioprinting, where we'll print out cartilage and bone to fill osteochondral lesions of the talus or bone defects more areas that had difficulty healing with the non-unions. 
To me, that's exciting. The other part that's really exciting to me that is just starting to percolate into the operating rooms is virtual reality, but more importantly, I think augmented reality. Virtual reality, you're immersed fully in a virtual world, which to me, that makes sense from a training and education perspective. But augmented reality is basically the convergence of reality with things that you can overlay. So there are some really cool ideas that I have, but that are already starting to percolate in the operating room for augmented reality in the, in the surgeon's hands. To me, that is very, very exciting. That is exciting. Uh, Dr. Vigdorchik had a great quote on that, that technology being able to bring him information that he needs when he needs it. Yep. Well, I, I think that's part of it. And I think the other part of it is also being able to bring in efficiencies, tools into the operating room when you need them. And they don't have to be physical tools. They can be virtual tools. And that, I think, is very cool, too. Wow, that is cool. I saw you on a video release recently about a big toe breakthrough, a synthetic cartilage interpositional implant. Interpositionals have always been fascinating to me. I'm waiting to see that bleed into the joint space. What's the latest on that? So that held a lot of promise about five years ago, and I still think in the right patient population, it, it has a lot of interest and promise. The specific product you're talking about is a synthetic cartilage, but it's really basically the same material as contact lenses, and think of it as thousands of contact lenses stacked on each other to be almost like a, an eraser from a pencil that you can stuff into, the, into a hole in the joint of the big toe. And it acts like a little spacer uh, interposition between the two bones. When it first launched in the U.S. about five years ago, there was a, a lot of promise on it. The interest on that has waned because of variable results in different surgeons' hands. I still remain very enthusiastic about that product, and I think in the right patient population with the right surgical techniques, it does very, very well. But I don't think that's the holy grail. I, I think we still need to figure out a way to resurface uh, and bring new cartilage or healthy cartilage to areas that are arthritic, whether it's large joints or small joints. And to me, that's where bioprinting is the future of where we're going here. I remember when suture anchors first appeared on the market, and I saw your name connected recently with an ultrasound assist in this space. What's that all about? That's a very cool product that took the, the company about 15 years to develop. It's basically an anchor that liquefies in bone. And you may wonder, well, why would I want that? In the area of foot and ankle, where we have small bones that we're dealing with, oftentimes we are trying to anchor tendons or ligaments to these small bones. And we don't have the room, like in the shoulder, to put in big anchors this is a technology where through a small hole, you can drop an anchor into that small hole, and then using an ultrasound-based technology, you can liquefy that, ankle, uh, that anchor in the bone so that its pull-out strength is much stronger than just that small pilot hole that you made to drop the anchor in. It's, it's very cool because it gives you uh, a lot of strength with a small hole to be able to anchor the anatomy or the tissues to the bone. And 
you can drill through it so you can actually stack multiple anchors right next to each other and they'll liquefy into the bone within one another. It's been, for me, a, a really cool technology to see grow in the operating room and, and indications have increased as we've learned to use it more and more. I read an article the other day about essentially kyphoplasty in the calcaneus. Is this a hero or a zero idea? I think it's a hero idea. So I was one of the first ones to use that and, and helped Kyphon develop a kit uh, that we called calcaneoplasty. It's a really slick idea to be able to reduce the, the, the articular surface that may have become compressed during the fracture. So you can minimally invasively pop that articular surface back into place, just like you would with a kyphoplasty, same kind of balloons, and then backfill the, the void with the graft and uh, be able to fix these calcaneous fractures. I still implement it in the operating room. It, it's a subset of calcaneal fractures that you can use this on. Can't really have any big deformity that you have to fix, which a lot of these calcaneous fractures have. But it allows patients to have minimally invasive surgery that literally takes about 15 minutes to do. It's got its place for those fractures. Do you like a nail plate or nitinol staples for your lapidus procedures? You could do either. It really depends. I think you have some patients where you could do minimally invasive surgery, and so the nail or rod implants could work because you're using smaller incisions. I think that uh, if you're doing more of a traditional open procedure, that's where you, for me, I like doing a combo of staples and maybe one or two screws to get multi-axial compression across that joint. You brought up total ankle replacement at the beginning. Where are we now on that? Well, I think we're further along now than we've ever been. The interest in total ankles has continued to increase. We continue to learn more about the biomechanics and the anatomy of the ankle. And we're at the fifth generation of ankle replacements now that are low profile so that you leave more bone stock to work with in the future. They're more anatomic, so they're trying to recreate the normal anatomy. The materials are better so that we are having less wear on the polyethylene. But they're not perfected, and the market in the U.S. has never seen as many total ankles on the market as we have today, but it's not perfected, and so we continue to refine, and the next generation will probably work on increasing the bone growth potential of these implants to the bone interface. You may start seeing even lower profile implants as the the biomaterials continue to improve, so it's an exciting time to be in in the total ankle space because there's so many resources and interest being pushed in this area. Nanotechnology. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many of these technologies that are so intriguing, and, and I love them because I think that many of these can be very disruptive to this space. And I think in the last 15 years, we're in a, in a time in the world where discovery and innovation and entrepreneurship is so rapid and it's historic and it applies even to medicine and specifically into foot and ankle. So nanotechnology, you can look at how it can alter the delivery of drugs. So we've seen it already, for example, in in liposomal bupivacaine, you've got these nanobubbles that are allowing us to do three to five day numbing of the surgical sites so that patients don't really have to use narcotics or it allows us to now do outpatient total ankle replacements all based on this nanotechnology. 
But I think that it goes beyond that. I think the future holds nanotechnology robots where, you know, it'll change in my mind. There's a future where it's going to change arthroscopic surgery where you may have like a nano, think about a nano lunar robot, right? That you can inject into the ankle and then you have a big screen that you can kind of take that lunar robot that's in the joint because it's nanotechnology and drive around the joint and it has little instruments on it or a little laser on it that you can address lesions or drill holes into osteochondral lesions or debride away the synovium. I think that's going to happen. I hope it's in my lifetime, but I think these are possible technologies. Well, let's go in the complete opposite direction for a second, something decidedly far lower tech. Do I need to go get a pair of lasso socks? I think so. <laughs> Much lower technology in the sense of uh, sophistication of materials being used, but a, a very interesting way of materials being used where these lasso socks provide compression, which that's nothing new. We've seen compression garments before, but they also have a differential in the cloths being used in, in a way that you actually get some ankle support throughout the ankle. And so you can now actually get to have patients who've had ankle sprains wear lassos, and in theory, you can get uh, better proprioception, you can get a reduction of swelling. It helps with the ankle sprain patients, but we've used it in my practice, not only for ankle sprains, but for tendonitis, for plantar fasciitis. And because of the way that you're getting stabilization through the sock, it's helping with these patients. And I think it all is about the proprioception. I actually use it myself every day in clinic and in the operating rooms, it's almost like an athletic sock, but has some compression in it. So I use it uh, from a compression perspective. And it's silly when I say this, but it's true. Your feet are not as fatigued at the end of the day, because I think that with the proprioception and with the compression, uh, as I used to have when I would wear crew socks that were normal crew, crew socks or you know regular socks. So it's pretty cool. I'm getting a pair, and I'm going to get a pair for a dear friend of mine who's wrestling with the gift that keeps on giving right now, plantar fasciitis. You did some investigation work on night splints. What's the verdict on this so common malady? Steroids, needling, laser, what's the go-to? Yeah, I, I'm not sure there's necessarily a go-to yet. I think that we're still struggling to truly understand the pathophysiology of plantar fasciitis. I do feel quite strongly that steroids are probably not the answer for two reasons. One is that you get fat pad atrophy with steroids, and that can happen even with one injection. And if you destroy a patient's fat pad from a steroid injection, they now don't have any cushioning left on their foot, and that becomes problematic and lifelong. Secondarily, I think that you can disrupt the plantar fascia uh, and rupture it with steroid injections. Now, some would argue, well, that's what we do in the operating room, so now you've done quote-unquote, surgical procedure through an injection. But that's not necessarily desirable. Um, I'm more intrigued with some of the options like biologics, orthobiologics. And for me specifically, I'm, I'm interested in the mesenchymal stem cell type biology and how it can be applied to plantar fasciitis. And even more specific than that, I've been very interested in the, the lipid-based stem cells. And so I've had experience doing this for about five years where patients who have recalcitrant plantar fasciitis undergo liposuction in the office, and then we micronize the, the lipids that we 
the fat that we, we harvest from the liposuction, we concentrate it down, and then we re-inject it into the plantar fascia. And we've seen very, very good results with that. It's not insurance-approved. It's, it's, it is FDA-approved, but it's not insurance-approved, so it's not covered, and it's, it's an out-of-pocket expense for patients. But for those who have recalcitrant plantar fasciitis and have tried everything else, I actually think that it's an option. Uh, out of all the ones I've done in the five years, I only remember one that ended up in the operating room. The rest have kind of gone back to resuming their life. We talked about a lot of intellectual property today, doctor, and I believe there's 10 patents with your name on them. Congratulations. Thanks. Are you close to market on anything that has you really excited? Is there one that you are particularly proud of? Most of those have made it to market. The anchor replacement, I think, has been really nice. It's part of the fifth generation of anchor replacements and, and is low profile, has some really unique features to it that were first to market. And and there's some IP around that. Something that was just uh, approved by the FDA is our total tailless spacer or total tailless replacement. So using 3D printing to replace your entire tailless. This has been, I think, a game changer for patients who had avascular necrosis of the talus where the bone was dying or have a non-union of the talus from a talar fracture or had an ankle replacement that failed because the talus collapsed. Those patients, before we started doing 3D printing of, of the talus, their only option was to do a fusion, which would leave them stiff, which would leave them with a limp, and really not as functional as they wanted to be. We have now been able to 3D print and now have FDA approval for 3D printing of total taluses to replace the entire talus in all of those situations, which is a game changer for these patients because now we are offering them motion-sparing options where they had none before. We're offering them a restoration of quality of life, a restoration of activities, which they couldn't have before. And that, to me, is very exciting when you can change patients' quality of lives, not just the x-ray, but what they're able to do and what they're feeling and, and how they're interacting with their families and how they're able to get back to gainful employment. That, to me, is, is very exciting. I've heard of fantasy football, fantasy baseball, fantasy island. Tell us about fantasy doctors. I get that question all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, about seven years ago, uh, maybe eight years ago, very frustrated with the fact that you'd hear pro athletes get injured and then you'd hear the coaches or the teams uh, give the, the spin on the injury. So you never really got the, the full insight of the injury. And it obviously was being used to control the messaging so that you wouldn't give teams, the opposing teams, advantage knowing exactly what's going on with some marquee players. And actually, even yesterday, I'm a big Yankee fan. Arnaldus Chapman yesterday was pulled out of the game or not, it wasn't even available for the game. And they were talking about how, well, the coaches are using this as their advantage. Nobody really knows what's going on. So this became very frustrating to me. At the same time, simultaneously, the fantasy sports world was building. So fantasy football, where fans could go and, quote unquote, draft their own team every single season and then play one another to win games, right? So I'd have my virtual fantasy team. You'd have your virtual fantasy team. My team would play yours every week or whoever I may play in our league. And at the end of the, the football season, we'd have a winner. 
knowing how to manage your roster becomes important. And to manage your roster, you need to know that, hey, if I have Tom Brady and Tom Brady just tweaked his knee, is he out for a week, a month, a year? What does this all mean? So if you just relied on the medical information you were getting from teams, you weren't always getting accurate information. So I started blogging initially just about these injuries. For example, Chapman had gotten hurt or Tom Brady got hurt or, or uh, Dak Prescott got hurt. We, I would just talk about these injuries. It became very frustrating to me because even though we were getting a lot of traction, it would take me two to three hours to write a blog post because it would go into the injury and the insight. So I started doing video blogging. And at the same time, a, f- a person who now is my partner, who's big in the fantasy sports world, reached out to me and said, hey, I love what you're doing. Maybe we should take this to the next level. And that's where we came up with the concept of the Fantasy Doctors. The Fantasy Doctors is now the, the leading site for all things injury-related as it relates to professional sports. So, you know, if LeBron tweaks his ankle you know, tonight in his game, I don't know if they're playing tonight or tomorrow, when the Lakers play in the playoffs, within 10 minutes, our team will have insight, video analysis on the injury, how likely it is that he gets back, what's the likely result of that injury, will it result in, a, in, in surgery or not, and what's the return to play, and how good will he be? So it, it's not only information that sports fans for that team or that player want, but if you're a fantasy owner for fantasy basketball or football, whatever it is, it's information you need to make decisions on your roster. And so it's exploded over the last uh, seven, eight years. We've basically been the, the medical information source for DraftKings. We've been on Fox Sports, SiriusXM, Yahoo Sports. And, and so it continues to grow, and, and it's just a fun thing that we do. Should I initiate a fantasy rep league to support the fantasy doctors with inventory and technical guidance? That would be fantastic. <laughs> we would welcome those things. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, think of it, you, you know, for example, Tiger Woods had a devastating motor vehicle accident a few months back, and you didn't get any information really of what was going on. Well, within an hour at 1 a.m., one of our team members was on live giving insight into what are the possibilities. The next morning, six hours after the injury, when we had a little more insight, we broke down that injury even more. And people started to really understand the gravity of what Tiger was dealing with and, and how serious his injury was. So that's kind of what we do. We, we, we provide insight into the casual fan and even the fantasy owners. How do people find out more about that? Uh, you can just go to uh, the internet and, and it's the fantasydoctors.com. Um, if you're on social media, you can look us up on Twitter at the fantasy DRS. On Twitter, we've got short form information for you to just digest by tweets. But if you're interested in looking at videos and watching videos, we've got a YouTube channel called the Fantasy Doctor, so you can check that out and subscribe there. Feel free to share it and help to you know popularize it. While we're throwing out links there, how can people reach out and see what you're doing on these other fronts? I know you've got a quite a digital footprint out there. We are actually revamping my own website, which is Seelan Parekh, MD. So my first name, last name, md.com. And we're going to try to now capture a lot of these different things that I'm doing. So it's one site to be able to follow our my, my clinical work, my foundational work, and then some of these things that I'm really curious about. 
You're the Director of Digital Strategy and Innovation within the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Duke. What exactly is that? So uh, over the years, I've become more and more fascinated about the convergence of technology and clinical practice of medicine. And so for two and a half years, I was co-chief of the Division of Foot and Ankle Surgery, but it wasn't where my passion was. And so uh, I approached the chairman and, and had an idea of wanting to really spearhead, again, the convergence of clinical medicine with digital technology. Now, when I say digital technology, you may think, oh, just the web. But I'm talking about AR, VR, software, smart devices, smart clothing, new software that allows us to track patients, to look at patient satisfaction, to be able to communicate with patients. So when I talk about digital strategy, I'm talking about all these things and how we can use them to innovate and integrate into patient care. My task has, for the early part, has been really focused on increasing the digital footprint for Duke Orthopedics on social media and on the internet. But there is a strategy coming out in the next six months that will start bringing in a lot of these other interests that I have and implementing some of these options in our care paths here at Duke. Exciting stuff. You know, we started out this conversation and you brought up family and legacy. I've read a lot about your parents, Gunvant and Barty Parekh. They seem like amazing people. And I thought, I cannot let this interview go by without asking you about them. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I think my parents' story is, is really probably any immigrant's stories where they came to this country looking for a better future. They struggled being Indians in a, in a world that really, in a country that really didn't have very many. And they struggled every day to make sure that they provided for the family. But all the while, you know, hard work, dedication, honesty, loyalty were really some of the pillars of, of the, the way my brother and I grew up. Everything they did was for the betterment of the family, whether it, was, it wasn't a priority to, for example, go eat out or, or take fancy vacations or even, you know, yeah, I was a kid and I wanted, yeah, I loved the Yankees back then. I love them now. We didn't have the money or the, my, my parents weren't going to use the money that we had or the resources to, to spend on, you know, something frivolous like that from their perspective. So my brother and I had to make our own using, you know, white t-shirts, you know, and, and drawing black lines so that we had the pinstripes on our t-shirts. But the point was they, everything they had was to, to save, to use for the family, but also to help their extended family immigrate to the U.S. and help them get established in the U.S. So it was pretty frequent that we grew up with extended family coming to the U.S., staying with our own family for a year or two in our own house. And then once they got their feet underneath them, they would move out. The next family members would come in. And, and so it was all about trying to live the American dream. And so they, they both passed uh, over the last 20 years. Both my parents have passed, but they left obviously an indelible impression for both my brother and I that we tried to raise our own families with. And, and so to honor them, we started a scholarship in their names because education was such an important part of what they believed in. And so our scholarship program is for 
two students uh, who, are, who are in college or graduate school, and we just help to, to give back a little bit and support, you know, wherever we can. I was able to catch part of this global marathon that you put on recently, a foot and ankle town hall that I believe was an arm of your Parek Family Foundation. Would love to hear about the foundation and would also like to know, was that town hall archive? The material on it was just amazing. So the foundation came about after my mom passed, but my, my dad was pretty sick. I had just come back from India where I was invited to speak about uh, ankle replacements and spent some extra time in India just meeting with other orthopedic surgeons. And, and what I realized was that there really was not a, the specialty of foot and ankle was not even in existence in India. There were only four guys in all of India that were doing some elective foot and ankle care, but by and large for 1.2 billion people, over 2 billion feet, there was not care being performed for those patients or those individuals. So I came back to the U.S. stateside and I was talking to my wife, who's a physical therapist. You know, we said, how can we make a difference here? And we thought, well, we could do surgical camps. That's nice, but it only helps people while we're there. So what can you do that's more lasting and and has more of a, a transformational work that we could do? And so the idea was, well, maybe we can not only do camps, but we could train and educate the orthopedic surgeons there so that they're continuing the work to learn and take care of patients. And so that was the impetus to start the foundation so that we would honor my parents and then even the same beliefs were very similar to what my wife's parents had. And so it was really honoring both parents, but then um, starting this work in India. And since that time, uh, we have taken care, we've trained over uh, 2,000 orthopedic surgeons in India. We have uh, trained over 1,000 physical therapists. We've donated over 3,000 pairs of shoes. We've done over 200 free surgeries. Foot and ankle is thriving in India to the point where they're starting to do research now and they're starting to start fellowship programs there. And so that was kind of the basis of the foundation. And then on top of that, we do the scholarship program in honor of my parents. And then because of COVID last year, we couldn't do any international work. And so the idea was to see give back on a global scale using all of this technology that we have now. So we did a Zoom-based uh, 24-hour marathon, basically with faculty from each of the time zones of the world. And, and when it was 8 p.m. in your time zone, we had faculty in that time zone doing a case-based discussion on a topic. So we had 24 time zones, 24 topics, and over 100 faculty join us. It was a huge success. Over 2,000 people joined us throughout the course of the meeting. And it's something that we probably are going to do now every year, even without COVID. Once we've beaten COVID, we're still going to be doing it. And it's curious that you just uh, asked me about archiving because in the middle of next month, we finally will start releasing each of these hours every week of content so that people can find it on my YouTube page, which is Seal and Parekh on YouTube. And then you'll be able to see the each of the sessions. And we're going to do a, a, a pre-lecture before each session where you'll get some foundational information before those case-based discussions. Great stuff. Your parents left such an amazing legacy. What do you want yours to be? Multiple things. I'd love to have my family feel like 
I was a great father, husband, always available, always listened, and did the right thing when appropriate. I'd love to have my patients remember me as a surgeon and physician who cared and just was trying to leave the world a better place. That it wasn't just about how many patients I saw or doing surgeries. It was trying to improve the quality of life for the patients I could touch individually, but also the patients that I didn't touch individually, but I influenced through innovation and ideas that I helped generate. Dr. Prick, you cross paths with so many reps in your day-to-day. What makes a great one? I think the great ones are individuals who really are kind of the guys you just want to hang out with, right? They've got great personalities. They're just normal individuals who aren't trying to always sell you. I think if you're always trying to be a salesman, that's not ideal. I think you have to be there who's a rep who makes me aware of new products when they're available, but is supportive of the practice in terms of being available, being pleasant, helping the operating room staff. So for example, there's an instrument that's missing from the set or a set. Hey, you know where it is? Help out staff to go get it. Or there's been times where some of my reps, even though um, I'm not using their stuff in the operating room, the rep stuff that I am using in the operating room may not be in the room and, and my rep will go get the competitor's devices or implants so that I can get the surgeries done so that I can help the patient get better. I think that's really special. And having reps who can do that, even though it may not be lining their pockets with the sale, is amazing, right? Because then we're all aligned with what's best for the patient. Great advice. Uh, Any advice to young foot and ankle surgeons looking to build a practice in their communities? How do you see social media and digital for the assist in that project? For young surgeons, I think social media is something that's not a dirty word. It's not something that's bad for you to do, but I do think you need to do it in the right way. I think it can't be necessarily saying, hey, I'm the greatest in advertising that this is why you need to see me. I think you have to do it more from an educational perspective where you're educating patients on procedures or implants or pathologies and you're trying to be a resource for patients and and maybe those patients come to you, maybe they don't, but you're trying to serve a need of increasing awareness and hopefully uh, a better quality of life for patients regardless of where they seek treatment. I think that's important. I think from early surgeons realize that um, you probably need to have a vision of where you want your practice to be. You want to make sure you you do the three A's, right? You're affable, available, and uh, able to do the work that you say you want to do. And and I think that still is important to having a thriving practice. And you've got to be patient. I mean, you've got to work hard. I, I think those are important as well. It's not like the old days where you just opened your doors and over time it got busy. You have to be available, affable, and able And then you have to, I think, participate in educating patients. I've put a lot of miles on my vehicles in North Carolina, and I've seen a lot of vehicles pass me with running mileage stickers on the back of their car. 13.1, 0.0 is my favorite. But you, sir, have earned a 26.2. When did you complete the Boston Marathon? 
a long time ago. It was freshman year of college. I had never run more than three miles in my life. And it was a challenge, something that I wanted to do. And, and so I trained for it and, and finished it. And uh, I, I never want to run the Boston Marathon again. But uh, my next physical things I want to do is I'd love to run the New York Marathon. Having grown up in North Jersey, I, I love New York. So to be able to do the New York Marathon would be great. And then I want to do some triathlons in, in my life. Once once my kids are a little bit older and let them be a little bit where they don't need so much oversight, then I think the triathlons in my near future. So, Dr. Parekh, i got to ask you one quick question about Indian food. A PA that I worked with once inspired me about chicken biryani. It's become one of my favorite dishes. Is there anything else that I need to be ordering at an Indian restaurant that I haven't considered? Absolutely. So I am 100% vegetarian, so I can't guide you on the, Indian, uh, on the non-vegetarian food, but I'll guide you on the veg- vegetarian options. If you haven't had it, there's something called dal makhani. It's uh, lentils in a cream curry. It's high protein, something you'll love. The other thing that you, if you haven't tried, is called chana masala, which is chickpeas in a almost tomato gravy. Also, always a winner for for people. The other thing, if you haven't tried, is the samosas, which is an appetizer. So it's a triangular stuffed pastry with usually potatoes and and peas with some spices, um, and that's great. And then I always like to top things uh, or or have things with uh, garlic naan if you haven't had that because the the uh, bread is really really um, fresh and the garlic really brings out some of the flavors. It's actually getting my mouth watering as I'm talking to you about it. (laughs) This whole conversation reminds me of a great movie I saw once, The 100-Foot Journey, about a gentleman who started an Indian restaurant, and it just inspired me to get to learn about this cuisine because the flavors are amazing. Well, and and the amazing thing about Indian food is that you can take any vegetable, let's just say a potato, and you can prepare it in over 30, 40 different ways, and it will taste different in each of those ways. And so particularly for Indian food, I find that it's very easy to be a vegetarian because of all the spices that are available, because of all the different techniques to cook that are found throughout the entire country. It's a great cuisine to explore. I would almost tell you to try different things every time you're at an Indian restaurant. One last thing, if you haven't tried yet, it's called a dosa. It's a, it's an Indian crepe, and they're usually about a foot long. So that is something to try as well. But there's so much variety that uh, that you can go to the same restaurant multiple times and never have the same thing twice. I look forward to doing a clinical investigation this weekend, doctor. Perfect. <laughs> Dr. Parekh, you are such a strategic and visionary inspiration to us all. You've done such excellent work over so much terrain. I was looking at your CV and I thought you could stop tomorrow and just spend the rest of your life admiring the body of work thus far. But I know you're not. Well done, sir. And I cannot wait to see what's next. And thank you for coming on Device Nation to share your amazing life with us. Well, I appreciate the time and opportunity and you know, stay inspired and stay curious. I think that's important, and, and that keeps me going. Words to live by. Now let's go get some lunch. Excellent. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs>
Wow, what an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Salim Farak, for coming on the show and sharing your life with us. I told you, a lot of nuggets of truth there. Outwork everybody in the room. Stay curious, stay inspired. Frame that and put it in the kitchen. While you're in the kitchen whipping up some biryani for yours truly, I hope you have an awesome week. A huge thanks to you for being out there in the audience. And as we look at this Delta variant coming at us again, may your hospitals not shut down and may you be safe.